0: Hi, my name's Samuel Finlay, and you're listening to the ACES podcast. In this episode, I share a conversation with clinical professor, burn surgeon, and 2005 Australian of the Year, Professor Fiona Wood, which chat about her career in medicine and plastic surgery, pioneering the spray on skin technique, treating Bali bombing survivors in 2002, future collaborations, and much more. So, let's get to our conversation. So I'm chatting to clinical professor and burn surgeon, Professor Fiona Wood, this morning. Thanks so much for joining me.
1: Well, it's my pleasure. It's lovely to be asked, thank you.
0: How have you been? Obviously covid 19s has changed um, the lives of most of us. Uh, how have you been holding up and how has work, I guess, changed for you?
1: Well, it's been really interesting, isn't it? The world's most remote city, I'm based in Perth and uh, it's come into its own, I think. Uh, there's been uh, very little. Uh, fortunately, COVID uh, infection here, but an awful lot of COVID activity, if that makes sense. In that, you know, uh, in March, uh, we had a meeting. I remember uh, sort of mid-March, it's Monday morning, going into the Children's Hospital and looking at what was happening around the world. Uh, I went immediately to uh, our, the Children's the clinic and uh, the Burns team in the Children's Hospital. Uh, We changed the configuration of the clinic, we removed furniture, clutter, toys, all that sort of thing. We uh, stopped our elective surgery, our reconstructive work, but continued, obviously we had to continue our acute work, and then did the same at the adult hospital and then at the university. We've got, uh, to all our students, we've got maybe a couple of weeks, let's work out how we can get the most data out in the next couple of weeks, and then establish a roster so that uh, the experiments can keep going and, and so one person is in here each day so we can process the biobank specimens we can keep the cells alive etc and so so there's been a lot of activity a lot of change and and I've seen a lot of people for example in their own home through video links and our clinics change radically uh so there's uh, a lot of activity and a lot of readjustment uh and that brings a level of anxiety to the system, doesn't it? You know, are we supposed to do this? Is this going to be okay? And I'm very pragmatic about, well, let's, be, let's, let's look at the common sense here. Let's stay within the framework, but we don't need to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Let's uh, like in having a roster so that we could keep our experiments going, for example, but uh, really interesting times.
0: So, we'll get to what you, you're currently doing in a moment, but I wanted to to go back to begin and, I guess, ask how it all began for you and why you decided a, a career in medicine.
1: I started, oh, I was uh, from the north of England, a young kid who uh, I was fortunate in that I got into the latter part of school and uh, it became obvious to me that I could do maths and science pretty easily, and so... Uh, that that was where I was channeled and and making my choices around that Uh, I was focused on going to uni Uh, initially I was looking at maths and science maths and physics I'm sorry at Cambridge but my brother was two years uh, ahead of me and he was in medical school and uh, coerced persuaded uh, me to change my preferences and uh, uh, we had a great party weekend in London and I'm ashamed to say that just tipped me over the balance and I changed my (laughs) and the rest is history as they say.
0: (laughs) So I don't know if this is true or not but I was doing a little bit of research for this interview and I, I happened to go on Wikipedia and I it read that you had a quite a successful career as a sprinter is that correct?
1: up until about being 15, I was actually quite, I'm really short, and I was quite tall for my age early, if you like, So, uh, and uh, I was very focused on running for a a long time, yes, and uh, but as I got a little bit older, I I started, you know, from 100 metres to 200 to 400, because uh, I had the tenacity and the stamina to keep going, uh, and the, the sort of, my headset, headset. I guess, but uh, I just didn't have the the ability to keep going and winning, and uh, so. But I was quite disciplined around that, and that that really, you know, I think you learn a lot from sport: how to win, more frequently, how to lose gracefully, uh, and how to plan to do better, to drive your personal best. You know, so so there's a lot of learn a lot, a lot of learnings from sport. I think you know, yeah, you, know, you don't get anything without hard work. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you've got to be pragmatic about your, your ability at some point.
0: Yeah. <laughs> That's right. So you, you said obviously you're from England originally and now you're currently living in Perth. How did that move come about?
1: Well, I uh I was taking uh, an exam. It was the general surgery. I was a general surgeon first and then uh subsequently subspecialized in plastic and reconstructive surgery and then into burn surgery. So at the time I was taking an exam for general surgery and we did like have cramming courses for want of a better term the people running this course would hate me to say that but it, essentially it was a cramming course <laughs> for three in the in uh uh the north uh, northern suburbs of the of london and there were 40 of us and within the audience there was one australian none of us knew and uh earth uh, and Even three weeks later, we decided to get married. And we were married the first week. We both uh, had a weekend off roster, which was 10 weeks later. So uh, <laughs> it, was, it was very much a, whoa, yeah, no worries. We can do this. <laughs> yeah, sounds <laughs> and, like it. And so, sort of, you know, 35 years later, and six kids later, we're still batting along. Uh, but it was an interesting time uh maybe we were both too busy he says we were the last two on the shelf but anyway uh, and we just kind of we very sort of got on with it yeah
0: so i guess why focusing more so on that that burn surgery and the, the i guess becoming a plastic surgeon rather than uh, a different area of medicine
1: oh that's well i guess uh, certainly uh I started uh, as a medical student exploring what was going on, and plastic surgery is very innovative and it's uh, creative. Uh, they're doing interesting work where microsurgery was first starting and things like that, and, uh, and tissue engineering. And so I was uh, drawn to that as a, med, um, as a med student, and I had uh, met great people who were working in that space who supported me in a very, uh, at a time when I was very vulnerable. I mean, there weren't many females around, and i was very fortunate to be supported by a lot of guys who recognized that what the most important thing was that people had to work hard yeah and uh, and i could certainly ticked that box and so uh i i had that exposure to plastic and reconstructive surgery early on and so as i i went through my first couple of years we do general and did a bit of orthopedics but uh, you know bits of the, this and that and the other uh, I step, kept gravitating back to plastic and reconstructive surgery. And within that, burns struck me as a really, really challenging area. And it is, and it still is. And uh, so I, I got drawn to the challenge and the, of the, whole, the holistic issues. You know, it's more than, burns is more than skin deep. And I know that now, uh, absolutely categorically, uh, to our cellular memory. Uh, at a fundamental level is changed by our burn injury particularly in children at those formative uh, years and so uh, it was i guess when i look back was it inevitable that i went into something that i i found so challenging and i guess yes it could have been uh, other things i uh, uh, if i'd been exposed in to different subjects but i uh, it's a combination of being exposed to patients with their problems and being fascinated by trying to work it out and, and you get slowly down that sort of rabbit hole, and I still find it fascinating every day. Still looking to see if we can do better, how we can look at the technology and experience and knowledge across the world and bring that to bear to an individual whose life has changed in an instant. Yeah. So clearly, I'm quite passionate about it. <laughs> yeah,
0: certainly. And where was your first, uh, I guess, professional job out of university? Once you, I guess, finished your studies? Uh, in
1: August, 1981, I walked straight into the wards of St. Thomas's Hospital Medical School, uh, the hospital there as a houseman. Uh, and I was a surgical houseman there. And then I went to Yorkshire, uh, so I could see mum and dad for a period of time. And I lived at home for six months while I was a medical houseman. In those days, we did six months surgery, six months medicine. And then I was back into London after that and always in a surgical stream from there on in.
0: Right. So when was the move to Australia?
1: Well, uh, that was, as I said, marrying the, uh, an Australian when we were both surgery uh, registrars in the in the south of England and uh, he, uh, he made it very clear to me he said you know you're not it's non-negotiable you marry me you live in Perth and that's not Scotland <laughs> and uh, and so I thought oh, yeah whatever uh, but he it, it was right it was non-negotiable uh, in 1987 uh, the professor of surgery here who uh, my husband had worked for in vascular surgery an academic uh, professor house Uh, said it was about time he came back and so we did uh by which time i had uh, a 15 month old and a five week old when we came here yeah so that was uh, an interesting plane journey
0: (laughs) i bet (laughs) not much sleep
1: (laughs) i was not much sleep anyway i was so excited and i got here november and I, I woke up the next morning i said but oh, wake up wake up and i said what's what's the matter i said it's sunny we can't miss a sunny day and he kind of looked at me and said, there'll be 600 there'll be 320 more of them this year I'm <laughs> going, what? you're kidding me yeah.
0: slightly oh different my- from the uk <laughs>
1: absolutely yeah <laughs> with my babies in the pr- pram and there be nobody out because it's like mad dogs and Englishmen, you know, go out in the midday sun. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so you're obviously well known for pioneering the spray on skin technique. Can you talk a little bit about how that sort of came about?
1: That's the tissue engineering story, really. I, I've i been uh, tracking uh, the concept of uh, of taking cells and uh, skin cells that are not injured and growing them into uh, sheets of cells uh, to mimic a skin graft. Was work that started in uh, Boston, in MIT and, and Brigham and Women's Hospital and the shriners Hospital there. In the late 70s, early 80s, I think first used clinically in 1982 I think. Uh, the guys in uh, East Grinstead where I was working in 85 in the lab there were trying uh, to do this work and I've been tracking it in the literature and uh, the first patient we used it on in Western Australia was in 1990 when we sent skin to Melbourne because the guys had just come back from Boston and learned how to grow the skin cell sheets. Uh, As I sent our first 12 cases to Melbourne. And by 93, we had a a, a funding for a laboratory with telethon funding. And Marie Stoner, a medical scientist and myself started really getting to that. Like, let's make this work for our patients in our model of care. I wanted to speed, speed, speed was really important. The time to healing. And so that's where we started. And, you uh, yeah, we, we spent a lot of time in the lab, in the theatre, analysing the evolution of the technique from sheets to suspension with immature cells. And then uh, we eventually developed a point-of-care medical device uh, where we can harvest skin cells of that individual, then not injured, and immediately apply them to a prepared wound, and that's what's you know just got FDA approval in 2018 and is now used quite broadly along in various places in the world.
0: Wow, and work you're obviously well known for as well is treating uh, Bali bombing survivors in 2002. I guess could you explain that experience?
1: That is an experience that it still remains quite surreal in my mind yeah. because it's, it wasn't an individual, I very much have always been embedded in teams uh, yeah. I inherited a fantastic multidisciplinary team as I started as director of the service in 1991 and that team has grown and in, uh, in in, in its capacity, and and also, uh, we, we I would say we work in an interdisciplinary team now because we work with engineers, with scientists, with uh, population health data linkage people. We we, we are we much broader than the traditional medical, nursing, allied health. But that forms the core of our team, and certainly uh, did at that time. We had done a lot of work in disaster ma- uh, response. In, in association with Woodside Petroleum because they were building, uh, extending the northwest gas shelf and what would happen if there was an accident there. So we'd uh, spent a good deal of time uh, developing a, a national disaster plan that had gone to the Australian uh, Co- uh, Health Minister's Advisory Council uh, for approval in July of 2002 and it was approved in August, and we responded in October. And so that response was an Australasian, well, Australian response, but it's an Australasian plan that uh, you know, caught the attention uh, internationally. Uh, and it was based on a lot of hard work before, and clearly a lot of hard work at the time. But it's like anything, you trade for something, you've planned it, then you're in a position to execute that plan and then learn from it so that you can do better into the future. And that was the, the, the space we were all in. And it was happening across Australia, as I say, under that sort of planning process.
0: Yeah, wow. And you've obviously had many accomplishments and been recognised for many things in your career, you know, such as being named Australian of the Year. I wonder, what's your most proud accomplishment in your career?
1: Oh, well, wow. that's a hard thing to say. I mean, I <laughs> I been mean, six kids, I think, yeah, yeah really, <laughs> they, they're a great crew. And certainly when I had a house full of teenagers, I never realised how stupid I was until that point in time. <laughs> because, <laughs> yeah, that, you, know, that would, you could consider that bad planning. But anyway, uh, no, I've been very fortunate that I've been uh, able to be the mother to such interesting folks. But, uh, oh, gosh, yeah, there's so many things that I, I, I'm proud of like kind of almost daily seeing some of the team achieve like most recently uh our senior nurse at the children's hospital has just got her phd and you think like yes uh, yeah. it's been a long, long hard slog for her because she's worked full-time during this time and you know then but she's you know she's now dr William, you know. so that's really cool and so and there's been those sorts of things and you, then you see the the pride you see when you've the job well done you know and the Uh, think oh that that was worth doing and and then yeah i've been really lucky Uh, i remember someone asking me when did you really know you're australian of the year and i said when i really knew i was australian of the year when i was looking down from the parliament house that morning that well that evening i should say and there were thirty thousand people and all the flags and there i was getting the trophy from john howard and my kids wouldn't stop clapping. They kept me making people keep clapping. <laughs> <laughs> and I was trying to give them so they shut <laughs> to stop them. But they kept going on. Uh, but then that was something to, be, you know, that was a really special moment.
0: Yeah. I've
1: been very lucky.
0: And you also co-founded the Fiona Wood Foundation. Can you explain what that foundation, I guess, stands for and the work that, um, I guess, the foundation does?
1: Well, the foundation wasn't always the Fiona Wood Foundation because that sounds a bit strange um, <laughs> very very long time ago uh, when Marie and I first started I, I the the system was such that I now I'm a full-time hospital uh, public hospital employee now have been for a very long time but initially I was uh, a sort of 0.8 uh, public hospital and, and 0.2 private practice because that's the way we were expected to work 20% of our time in private. And I I found that really challenging uh, because I I didn't quite understand the whole system. And if I'd come from, you know, the Scargill country, you know, so it was a a little bit strange to me. And one of my friends said that, you know, uh, for your research, why don't you ask your patients, your private patients? And so what we did was... Uh, we established the Macomb foundation because Harold Macomb was my great mentor, a very special plastic surgeon, with extraordinary intellect and capacity. And, and uh, so we started the Macomb foundation and not, uh, obviously charitable not-for-profit and I would write when I sent the bill out to a private patient I would only charge them the get uh, let them what they get from Medicare and say if you want to pay more if, <laughs> you know, like sounds really strange <laughs> Give me more with if you like uh, if you'd like <laughs> to pay more you can uh, donate to the charity and it will be tax deductible and so that's how we started uh, supporting our research with people and we would uh they were people very generous and in addition to that uh we would uh go and i remember marie going to the cherry pickers and ending up in a, uh, a tight skirt up in a, a, a cherry, picker.
0: <laughs> <Literally> <laughs> cherry
1: picker high up over the cherry pickers auction which was real cherries uh because they donated uh, uh to us and i would the boot scooting uh a festival, taking all my kids to the boot scootin' festival, and so on. It went, and so that was how we established our research funding in the in early days, as well as competitive granting and things. Uh, and that was how we linked in with corporate people like uh, uh, Woodside and Chevron and Levin and Legal and people who've helped us along the way uh, through this not-for-profit foundation. And as we've gone forward, uh, and I'm you know, kind of handing over the reins, and our chair now is Tony Keenan, who was chair of Care for a long time and is a very high-flying lawyer. Uh, then they changed the name to the Fiona Wood Foundation. And so the Fiona Wood Foundation is uh, specifically to f- support the research around burns and scarring and the education uh, and the psychological support of our burn patients through our learning management systems. And uh, it's given us an opportunity to link with very generous people uh, across our, our system that have helped us keep going and made it possible for our research to keep going in what we all know is a really, a really tough time. Uh, it, research competitive granting is, is tough. And what happens when you don't get the grant? Well, this has kept us going in those lean years as well. And uh, Marie and I, way back, uh, signed our intellectual property for the cell uh, spray, the resell kit. And so now the royalties, we had the idea that our, the royalties from that technology would help our research. And yes, we got there in the end because now we have significant royalties coming through that also support the foundation. Um, which in turn supports the research in burns and scarring across uh our system, so that's what that's the story of the foundation, which is ongoing
0: so you've obviously worn many hats throughout your career. I guess how do you go juggling all of those those roles
1: oh, I feel like a Chinese plate juggler yeah. <laughs> and, oh, I don't want to drop that one it'll make a really big smash. <laughs> Sometimes you just have to be, uh, you know, really pragmatic. I've been really fortunate to be able to work with people all the way along the way. Uh, that at time, you know, that people go stay for a long horse, some come and go, but, you know, delegating and working together sort of lightens the load and means we're more productive. But I've had a really interesting experience of late around the COVID situation, Um I, I'm a great believer that there's an awful lot of human energy. The most underutilized resource we have is the human brain. Yeah, and uh, so why don't we ask people what their ideas are? And there's a, an, uh, I think, platform uh, that was uh, that is owned by our public sector in our government, and it started a uh, just over a year ago. Uh, it was pub- It was facing internally, and. Uh, we're, uh, during COVID and now, uh, we were able to uh, negotiate in the Public Sector uh, Commission, negotiate negotiated with Crowdicity to increase the number of licences and turn it community-facing. And the idea is that you put up challenges on the the platform and the community can put forward their ideas but of course then uh, and so we put challenges up on uh, on the platform that were supported by the government and then but what do you do with those ideas so myself uh, and a girl Gemma green is an innovation officer in local government and uh, chitina who's works for the RAC we've got together an advisory board that's really uh, very comprehensive, and everybody pro bono, and so we put together this hub uh, of all the innovation hubs and, and different groups, uh, like uh, our, our Institute of Management and, and RSC HBF and things, and so started processing those ideas and uh, connecting people and. Uh, because I you know, many ideas were similar and connecting people with government uh, or, or people could t- so that they could develop their idea and so on it's gone and so we've we've got 140 ideas of substance through the system and I've done things like with stem for innovation is a group at Curtin University and John Curtin high school and with zoom I went on a, a tour around a covid operating theater or set up for covid patient wow. and normal with but no one in there just me and the <laughs> Zoom, and at the other end of the zoom year 12 11 and 12 kids and that video with their questions and answers and that video has gone on to a closed section of the platform of the i think platform and we have up i think close on 800 uh uh school kids and their teachers linked into that now or linking into that uh and then that's they go through a design Thinking process, trying to teach people how to problem solve and design think, and then they will be pitching their ideas uh, in a few weeks' time. And so that was an interesting looking at that as a pilot. Is this something we can help with STEM in schools by you know getting people like myself in all sorts of different industries, just going on a you know a, a half an hour of your daily work? Well, where does science intersect? and creativity and everything intersect with this job but how could it be done better and it could be any anything you like so we're doing that as a pilot to see where we go with that with that, and presenting that to the education minister um and we're absolutely neck deep in a piece of work on telehealth telemedicine huge response from around covid and a huge response from the community and we've uh, we had a workshop yesterday that was face to face with limited numbers. It was oversubscribed. We uh, set send out an invite for two virtual workshops next week. Oversubscribed within 24 hours. And so we're really working out how can we actually engage everybody who needs wants their voice heard in this space. Huge opportunity uh, for changing the way we uh, we practice in and. Le- moving towards a hybrid model of face-to-face as well as using technology uh, and how we use it for, in the right place at the right time for the right person and giving the person choice you know so a huge piece of work that we're yeah. kind of like whoa <laughs> 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 to have what we did, uh, we Deloitte's, and all this is pro bono. EY they're doing uh, doing their work telehealth workshops and all pro bono, and people have been so generous. And Deloitte's did a design sprint for us uh, two, a couple of weeks ago. It was It was it was full within twenty four hours. Yeah, so people are interested. So you know? it is a very. We need to understand how to help each other during this time because it's not over yet, yeah. and we've got the deal with but i'm i'm really uh, amazed and grateful for the amount of energy and interest people are showing so let's actually look at uh, look at this as an opportunity to drive health, health wellness and understand prevention and understand how we can make decisions for ourselves that impact on the community around us in a positive way you know so no exciting times with lots of opportunity.
0: Yeah, and I guess my next question relates to that somewhat. But I remember last year when you visited Aces to give a workshop and an address. Remember you said we have to do better, and I wonder if that sort of really resonated with myself and a lot of the researchers that were in the in the um, workshop. But I wonder how can researchers approach, you know, this idea of making a difference, and, and how do you make a difference, you know, with given uh, the area that you're in.
1: I think uh, uh, communication is key, isn't it? Because
0: yeah. you know,
1: the days of of the the scientist in the in the dark laboratory, beavering <laughs> away and being out with the eureka moment. I mean, I'm not sure that ever happened anyway. Yeah, I said the other day, I don't think Archimedes just jumped in that bath once. He'd been doing it over, <laughs> and over and over. No, it wasn't. Yeah, he worked at that anyway. Uh, so. So I think we know, we know we live in a time where communication, capacity for communicating is, uh, yeah, is unprecedented. That's an overused word at the moment. Uh, and so, so by communication, we can understand where our ideas and where our work fits in the big tapestry. And it has to fit in the tapestry in order to to get traction and to uh, be of use. I don't think there's anything that is wasted. It is only wasted if, it's not sh- if it doesn't get shared, you know, because it sparks other ideas. It fits a little piece of the jigsaw, it, even if it's negative, And especially we're bad at, bad at actually taking it on the chin and saying, oh, I did this experiment and it wasn't right. Well, then let's tell you so that there be the next yeah. dozen people do it better, you know. So it comes down to this having the courage to communicate. And I say courage, and I think that matters on a number of levels. You know, intellectual property, I understand that. But let's have the courage to put our priorities in the right place. And so, let's have the honour. I'd, like you know, I'd, like, I'd like to introduce an honour system such that when the intellectual property is actually at, on the table, it is dealt with honourably. Mm. And so and that we all believe that it and, and buy into that so that we don't have some kind of rogue going off and stealing everything. I mean, it's just, no, that's not the way it works. Yeah. And if we have communication, uh, I think that's less likely to happen. I think if we have strong collaboration with, based on strong relationships, then that is much less likely to happen. There's always going to be bad eggs here and there. But just, we can't let those bad eggs in there impact our whole future. The future, you know, no. Yeah, you know, we, we have to have the courage, you know, for the good ones to stand up and say, actually, no, I'm going to share this because I think if I share it, it's going to get better. And I will, I, I will grow and then my idea will grow. And as a result, it will be connected into this massive, complex tapestry of life, you know. And if it makes a big, little difference, or if it makes a big difference, doesn't matter. What matters is that my energy is of worth. That sounds kind of a bit philosophically uh, naive, I think, but I it has the right kind of feel for me. You know, yeah, honor, integrity—that's what underpins science.
0: Yeah. I wonder. Do you? This is something I've asked everyone that I've had on the podcast so far. But I wonder, do you have a morning routine or something that you do every day that helps you approach your work?
1: Yeah, it varies over the years. But my my adventure for some years now, and I've really liked being at home because I get up usually get up at five, and uh, the, I always yeah check emails, get everything set, and then I exercise. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that can be like this morning it was an exercise class on zoom with my son's uh fiance she's been doing that for us a few times a week for a long time uh, and uh, then i 'm in the ocean and it's the ocean uh, whether it's the ocean in the summertime i 'll be in there at maybe five thirty six uh, like it 's dark uh, at the moment, so it's just getting light and when I was in there at about half past six this morning uh but it's we're nearly at the, the the shortest day. I think that's Monday, and we start getting light again, so I can get in earlier. Some days I go in in the dark, and it's scary. <laughs> <to say. laughs> I was like, I can't see where I'm going, um, and I just I just play in the waves. Uh, I, I walk down to the beach and play in the waves, and it clears my head. It's it's actually I'd have to say it's cold right now, so so sort of wakes me up. That's for sure. <laughs> Uh, But it it feels good. I used to ride in the mornings uh, and then sometimes get in the water after riding if I had time. But I I think now I I ride my bike later in the day occasionally, but not as often as I used to ride. But uh, because I like the water in the mornings, it sets me up. And I've always been a person that's exercised every day. Uh, And that's harder when you're (laughs) travelling. That's (laughs) what I've really... That's why I really enjoy being home for this time because I can get to my favourite place, which is the big, is the ocean. And so I think you, uh, doing something to keep your 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 so you fit and healthy is is important.
0: Yeah, definitely. I actually do the same thing. I jump in the ocean most mornings, and it is uh, getting a little bit colder <laughs> the last couple of weeks. But um, yeah, it's it's a great way to start the day.
1: Yeah, it sure is. You've got a great spot there. Yeah. yeah. I was like, Always have to bring it for, remember to bring my neighbors when I come over to see you guys.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely.
1: <laughs> the sun goes down the wrong way.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it, it's, it's getting about it's, it's getting light at about 7 a.m. or just before 7 a.m. here now. So I'm not as game as you. I don't, I don't go in when it's dark.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's like, mm. <laughs> where's that wave coming?
0: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, I wonder if. You weren't doing, you know, what you do for a living. What do you think you, you might be doing as a different career, if anything?
1: <laughs> oh, I, I don't. It's interesting, isn't it? Because you, you, you look back and there's sort of those sliding doors along the way and uh, you're out, you pop at the other end. And, and you look back, and you think, how would it have been if the doors slid a different way? And the only thing I know is I've been fortunate that I've got the capacity to work and that energy. And whatever I would have done, I would have done, like hundred percent. You know, I'm just that sort of person. Uh, the I mean, I'm when I'm saying that, the words echo my dad's. My dad's words, like, if if it's worth doing, it's worth doing properly. Last, you know, it's like <laughs> don't bother. Otherwise, just don't bother. Uh, and I guess I, you know, there's two ways you could take that: is not to bother or do it properly. And I, I took the do it properly very seriously. Uh So. And I've, I think capacity to work is, is something that I, I've been, I think it, I feel very fortunate that I have that, you know, and I, I know that that is something that is intrinsic to just the way I am. And, uh, but it's something you can work on and and build. And maybe I've just built it along the
0: way. Yeah. Um, and just to sort of finish up the podcast, I guess, I wonder if there's any future plans
1: Oh, there's always always so much to do and so it's so exciting. Our 3D printing work, which has brought us uh, to Wollongong as well uh, yeah. with uh, Gordon and Gordon Wallace and you know the, and all your team there, and looking at the various things we can do around uh, sutures and uh, printing different molecules on there and uh, printing skin at, at the point of care, and not just the cells but the whole framework. Looking at the neurology, you yeah, know one day. The, the, the skin is a giant receptor and the neurology of the recovery injury and recovery fascinates me one day maybe we will be able to think ourselves whole isn't that cool you yeah, know that's sort of yeah. exciting and understanding how the brain changes during these things and understanding the chemistry of of injury healing and scarring so that we can actually see how it links with all the systemic problems whether it be heart or brain yeah oh, and the work it goes on yeah i just signed another 5 year contract yesterday and i'm already oh obviously-
0: congratulations
1: i <laughs> like <laughs> do i really want to do this oh no. <laughs> okay then uh yeah so i don't think i'll ever retire i'll just redeploy and the (laughs) the areas uh, you know surgery is 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 getting harder and harder as you get older and so i i teach and 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 there in that capacity but i don't want to uh be a surgeon that gets tapped on the shoulder i will teach and support uh Mm. but the research again is the ideas that 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 you know, wake me up in the morning and Think, yeah, that's interesting. And so linking with everybody uh, and collaborating around those ideas is really what will keep me going, I think, into the future.
0: So when the whole COVID situation is behind us and uh, travel is a little bit more acceptable, have you got any plans to come back to ACES headquarters in Wollongong and maybe, you know, progress that collaboration? Oh.
1: Oh yes, yeah, and uh, uh, yeah, we managed to get the team over to us uh, before the, the the barriers. That's right, yeah,
0: down. it's perfect timing. Yeah.
1: yeah, and so yeah, I think it's on the cards that I'll be over there with Mark as well, and yeah, and the team over with us. And so no, I think it's a very strong collaboration. And Gordon's uh, the the workshop uh, I was at ooh, not that long ago uh, with all our. Different printing with the orthopedics, the ENT, the, uh, all these different subjects. I mean, it was fascinating and really exciting. So now I think there's a lot of reason to come and see you as well as the beach.
0: Yeah, definitely. That's great to hear. Well, thanks, <laughs> thanks so much for um, taking the time to have a chat. It was a, it was a pleasure to talk to you. And um, yeah, all the best going forward.
1: Well, thank you very much and you
0: all guys stay safe and I look forward to seeing you soon. Definitely. Thanks, Vienna. Thanks for listening to the ACES podcast. For more episodes like this one, be sure to subscribe wherever it is you get your podcasts. You can also find more information about ACES on our website, electromaterials.edu.au. There you'll find links to our various social media platforms. And you can also follow me on Twitter, at Samuel Finlay.